Can exposing someone to the things that makes them anxious treat anxiety? You're listening to special programming on psychiatry and psychology on ReachMD Radio at XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Whiteside. Dr. Whiteside is an assistant professor of psychology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. His work involves using neuroimaging to evaluate the effectiveness of psychological treatments for obsessive-compulsive disorders in children and adults, and developing assessment procedures for anxiety and other childhood emotional and behavioral problems. Today we're discussing the role of exposures in the treatment of anxiety disorders. Hi, Dr. Whiteside, and thank you so much for joining us for this special segment. Thank you for having me. I've heard it said that anxiety is a normal and important part of life. What are your thoughts about this? I think that's exactly right. If you think about what would happen if we didn't have anxiety, fear, or worry, we'd get ourselves into a lot of trouble. We wouldn't put our seatbelts on. We wouldn't look both ways before we cross the street, and we get ourselves into situations where it's possible that we would get hurt. So anxiety and worry keeps us safe. It keeps us doing the things like studying for tests because we're afraid that we might do poorly. It keeps us doing the things that we need to do. You mean we don't do those things for rewards or for fear of retribution, like a ticket from the policeman or a spanking from our parents? All those things probably play a role. Uh, and it's definitely true that we do some things for rewards, for something good to happen. But two of those examples, fear of retribution, fear of getting a ticket. Um, this sort of anxiety-inducing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is the incidence of anxiety in children? As you could probably expect, Estimates of anxiety disorders vary widely, but some studies have the incidence level as high as 18%, although most are lower than that. But it is thought to be the most common childhood psychiatric problem, not the most common that brings kids in to be seen, but the most common occurring in kids. Are you seeing an increase in the diagnosis of anxiety disorders in children? Is the true incidence increasing? For instance, autism, this tremendous amount of talk about. Is anxiety increasing as well? That's an excellent question, one that I get often. It's my impression that there have been some studies suggesting that anxiety and depression in children is increasing. You mentioned that it's an normal, important part of life. Is there a level at which it becomes pathologic, and how do you discern those levels? Anxiety, whether or not it's problematic, depends mostly on how much distress it's causing, how frequently it's occurring, and how much it's getting in the way of life. So, for example, shyness is a perfectly normal and common trait to and feeling to experience. But if shyness has reached a level where going to school, being with extended family is very stressful for the child and the family and prevents the child from making friendships, doing other activities, is really getting in the way of life, that's when we would give it a label as social anxiety disorder. And that can be true for all fears. It's the frequency and the amount of disturbance in life. There are obviously different options for treating an anxiety disorder. You have focused on behavioral therapy. Why is that? Behavioral therapy has been extensively studied more so in adults than children, although the child literature is slowly catching up, hopefully. And it's been studied for a number of decades and has been found to be a very successful, straightforward treatment of anxiety disorders and problems with fear. One of the reasons that I've been so interested in it is, one, that it's very straightforward, it's easy to understand. Two, it's got a very practical 
implication for functioning. So if someone's having a problem with anxiety that's getting in the way of life, one goal is to help them feel better and less anxious. But the second goal is to get them doing the things that they need to do and they want to do, make friends, go to school. So a behavioral approach fits very nicely into that addressing functioning. How do the results of cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of childhood anxiety disorders and OCD compare to other treatment choices? What's the cost-benefit ratio? That is a question that very much needs to be explored in more detail. Very recently, a study came out in the New England Journal of Medicine that suggested that behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy and medication are about equally effective and both better than doing nothing but that the combination of medication and behavioral therapy was most successful. With OCD, there's been some more studies, and in general, there's a similar finding, although there's probably more confusion in both of them, and more specific studies need to be done to really figure out which is more effective, when and for whom. Now, there are different forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, different categories. Could you explain to us the different ones and why you chose exposures? Cognitive behavioral therapy involves the general idea that when someone, a child or an adult, comes in to see us as mental health professionals, they want to change the way they're feeling. And we know that thoughts, cognitions, lead to the cognitive part of CBT. Thoughts affect the way we feel and are affected by the way we feel. And then actions or behavior also affects our thoughts and our behaviors. And we've got much more control over changing our behavior in particular and thoughts as well as vehicles to change the way that we're feeling. And especially with children, it's much easier to change our behaviors than to change our thoughts or our feelings. So that's one of the reasons that I've found it very satisfying to focus on the behavioral part, so the exposure part. Other aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy include Looking at your thoughts, frequently when we're feeling nervous, we exaggerate how likely it is something bad's going to happen and also how bad it would be if it did happen. So one of the cognitive pieces is coming up with more realistic ways to look at the world. Other strategies include relaxation exercises and other ways to help decrease our anxiety when we're feeling nervous. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us on this special segment on psychiatry and psychology on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Whiteside, and we're discussing treatment of anxiety disorders. Tell us a little bit about exposure therapy, what it actually means, and why you chose this modality to focus on. Exposure therapy, very simply, involves facing your fears. So if you are afraid of something that is not dangerous, the most straightforward and effective way to reduce that fear is to repeatedly do whatever it is that you're afraid of. The example I always like to start with is a very straightforward, is a fear of dogs. Okay. Uh, if you're afraid of dogs, your neighbor's dog, the dog at your friend's house, it's very difficult to be talked out of that fear because although we do learn from watching others and learn from what others tell us, a lot of our deep-seated beliefs are based on our own experience. And so... What we need to do to manage a fear of dogs is to spend time with dogs. And the more we spend time with dogs, the more we learn that they're not particularly dangerous, they're more likely to sniff us or lick our hand than they are to bite us. And that also that our anxiety will go down even if we stay near dogs. So the exposures is gradually spending more and more time with dogs and having more and more opportunities to learn that they're not as dangerous as we thought they were at first. 
How do you bridge that initial chiasm? You know, get that child to actually go into the house with the dog. Right. One technique that we have is taking small steps. So sticking with the dog example, we would never find a big, scary-looking dog and tell the child to hang out with the dog and come and tell us when they're not afraid anymore. But rather, we'd start with a small, calm puppy or a calm, older dog who didn't move around very much. We'd have the dog in the room, and the child would start on the other side of the room and gradually move closer and closer until they're able to pet it and then let it walk around and then hold it and eventually play with the dog walk with it on the leash, etc. Sometimes beginning with a dog is too much, so we have to start with looking at pictures of dogs or watching movies of dogs or thinking about playing with dogs as a first step. And we can typically find something that is small enough that the child can start with that, and they learn that their anxiety does go down even though they spend time with the dog or the picture of the dog. And with that success, it's easier to take the next step. Usually, Kids are pretty motivated to feel better. No one likes being anxious and scared a lot of the time. And that's typically enough to get them started. If that's not enough, particularly with smaller children who it's harder for them to look into the future and say this is going to help down the road, setting goals and using rewards and incentives can be helpful in getting things started. Are there any particular rewards that work better? It's very particular to the child. We like to do social rewards, fun activities with parents or with friends. We also can use material rewards such as toys and things like that. Glad you said the social first. (laughs) I'm a pediatrician. That's what I tend to preach. Right. We definitely like to start with that. But in the end, if working towards getting a new video game or having time to rent a movie or something like that is, is the thing that's motivating enough for them to get over their fear and improve their life, we're not above using that. Using the dog example... And I know, obviously, there's different magnitudes of fear or anxiety, but typically about how many small steps or how many sessions would it take to overcome a fear of an animal, and how long is each of the sessions typically? There's been a lot of work recently, particularly by uh, Dr. Tom Ollendick, who's one of the leaders in child anxiety, particularly phobias, who has developed a one-session, a one-day treatment of specific phobias. And that's typically a three-hour appointment or so that they go through the steps of addressing the fear. And then, of course, you can make a lot of improvement in one appointment, but for it to generalize to real life, you have to do a lot of practicing at home. And so it's possible to do treatments of a specific fear of animals in one day. Typically, we will see people for three or four sessions for a specific fear of an animal. So it's successful very quickly. I mean, that sounds very encouraging. Yeah. I deal with test anxiety a lot. Again, I mentioned I was a practicing pediatrician. Any pointers for some of our other primary care listeners who are out there dealing with kids that are afraid of their tests? There can be different flavors of test anxiety. Uh, So it's important to try to get a sense of what the fear is and what else is going on. For example, it may be part of a generalized anxiety where kids are worrying a lot about lots of things and worry about being perfect and worrying about being good enough. could also be related to OCD in terms of perfectionism and having to do things over and over again and that making a time test being very challenging for them. And of course, one of the main things that you'd want to look for would be a learning disability to make sure that there's not some real reason that this child is more nervous about test taking than others. Also, kids sometimes are afraid of their body's physical reaction when they're nervous. So the heart beating, the upset stomach, the shakiness, the more difficulty concentrating 
and it can be those physical symptoms of anxiety that they really get nervous about because they start to take the test, their body starts to react, and they think, oh, no, here I go again. I'm going to be overwhelmed with anxiety. I'm not going to be able to complete the test. We have a few minutes left. Is there anything else, any other salient features of your work that you'd like to make clear to our audience to bring to the public? The study that we did and the work that we're doing is really focusing on exposures as a major part of treatment. And the bottom line that we're trying to communicate is, one, that a lot more research needs to be done, but two, that parents, primary care physicians, anyone working with children with anxiety, as long as they take a warm, supportive patient approach, yet remain firm with kids and enthusiastic and encouraging them to gradually face their fears as long as it's not a true danger, uh, that that is one of the best ways to help kids manage and overcome their anxiety. You mean you just can't tell the child, just get over it? (laughs) (laughs) Telling kids just to get over it typically doesn't work as well. Are there any fears, anxieties, I guess you deal with the whole you know, basket of problems, obviously, but are there any where you found the exposure therapy to be the most successful? If you had to say like the top three anxieties or conditions where exposure therapy has shown the kind of quick responses you mentioned, like in fear of animals? In general, in my experience, the more concrete and specific the fears, the better it responds to exposures. So a fear of an animal where you're afraid it's going to attack you and you can spend time with it and within 5, 10 minutes, half an hour, you'll learn that it's not going to attack you, the more successful exposures are. So specific fears. OCD actually responds very well to exposures because people can learn very quickly that what they're afraid of, getting sick or something horrible happening, doesn't occur and those can respond very well. Things like general worry and Social anxiety, where what you're afraid of is more abstract and more diffuse, do respond to exposures, but not as quickly as those more specific fears. Well, I guess Winston Churchill knew what he was talking about when he said there is nothing to fear but fear itself. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Whiteside, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing using cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically exposures in the treatment of anxiety disorders in childhood. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to a special segment on psychiatry and psychology from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I invite you to listen to ReachMD online, on demand, and on the air, and to visit us at ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I wish you good day and good health.